We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by Kedigalan Media's Jie Ting Ye. Good to be here as always. And Taipei-based freelance journalist Ralph Jennings. Thanks for having me on the show, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing a reported ban on U.S. officials visiting Taiwan, tougher penalties for spying for China, an Ever Airways flight attendants strike, a resolution condemning the United Nations for discriminating against Taiwan journalists at this year's World Health Assembly, and the latest in super trash recycling. But we'll begin with the DPP-led legislature this week passing a rather controversial amendment to the Referendum Act on Monday that delinked referendums from national elections. However, under the amendment, national referendums will now be limited to the fourth Saturday of August every two years, starting in 2021. DPP lawmaker Zhang Jian told reporters that the measure was passed in order to avoid problems caused by having referendums held alongside national elections on the same day as we saw last November. Now, the KMT opposed the amendment, arguing that it was in violation of the Constitution. And the bill means that referendums cannot be held next January the 11th when voters go to the polls to elect a new president or in conjunction with the next local government elections, which are slated for late 2022. Now, there's concern the new provision will likely make it harder for referendums to pass, as the Referendum Act requires an initiative to be supported by at least 25% of eligible voters and to be backed by more than half of the votes cast to be approved. And turnouts of that size may, according to some, be harder to find in late August in a non-election year rather than on a normal election day. Local civic groups this week have been slamming the amendments, saying of course that it will make it harder for the referendums to get approval, with the Taiwan Environmental Protection Union saying that the Preventing referendums from being held alongside national and local elections could make them more vulnerable to political manipulation, while the Nuclear Mythbusters group told reporters that the amendments are tantamount to confiscating people's ballots, while the Coalition for Happiness of Our Next Generation says the amendment could, could mean lower turnouts in referendums, making it harder, of course, for referendums to reach their thresholds. And former Vice President Annette Liu also spoke out this week about the amendment, and she basically said, well, the public should elect better lawmakers to make new revisions to the Referendum Act. So, Ralph, of course, the Referendum Act and the DPP, they seem to be making re- amendments to the Referendum Act like most people would eat cornflakes for breakfast. Yeah, I was wondering about that too, because in back in the day, I think under Chen Shui-bian, they had hoped that the referendums could be a little bit more, well, easier to put on the ballot at least, especially things regarding cross-strait relations. So, anything that would complicate it or make it harder to offer to the public um, would seem to go against that mission at the time, although things have changed, and I think <clears throat> the odds of a unification versus independence referendum are really low, so perhaps this is all local infighting about who's going to be voting when on what, things that we can't quite see yet. Right, Jetting, of course, the DPP, big backers of referendums like ralph said but i mean now they seem to be backing away from referendums well i mean you kind of have to go back to the history of the dpp and where this whole idea of the plebiscite or the referendum comes from right so there is a very long history on the pro um independent side going all the way back to the 40s and 50s of people saying well the taiwanese people should decide for themselves and that's where this whole referendum idea comes in 
Uh, and as uh, Ralph mentioned, in um, 2003-2004, when the law was um, in the final stages of you know, coming into fruition, the DPP was supporting um, in the referendums being um, on the easier side to you know, have referendums and because they were the ones pushing it, right? And, as, and they, you know, at, at the time, they wanted referendums to be held at the same time as national elections, also for you know, turnout reasons and for... Um, you know, sort of mobilization reasons and campaigning reasons as well. Um, so it's rather interesting to see how, where we've come since then. Um, obviously, in the last round of refer- uh, referendums where Taiwan, you know, it was the first time Taiwan had any sort of meaningful policy referendums, they were not, um, they were very far from, you know, deciding the national, you know, the big national question of the day. Instead, you know, they were obviously on a very controversial but domestic issues, right? And so, um, you know, now I think it's it's almost to a point where, you know, it depends on where you see yourself, you know, the referendum. If, you, if one thinks the referendum is in his or her favor, then he would support having referendums be more, you know, having the threshold for referendums be lower and vice versa. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, we've come a long way from having referendums as sort of the ultimate kind of independence, you know, this deciding, you know, thing to decide independence or unification now to, well, this is just a way to decide, you know, power, you know, energy policy or, you know, so on and so forth. Right, I mean, Ralph, one could argue that the DPP may be sulking a bit, of course, after it lost the last referendums quite badly. Yeah, I was just thinking too that the, um, but yeah, the last referendums were obviously kind of a mess because they were bound up with the local elections, which were already quite complex because of the sheer scale. So perhaps there are people within the party and elsewhere who feel like to keep people clear on what's what, they should separate people elections from referenda elections to give everybody a, a fair chance to think and breathe and understand what they're doing. Then again, if you're committed to democratization in, in its fullest, then you would want the most people to come out as possible. And the way to do that is to hold elections together, especially big ticket stuff like presidential and parliament races, uh, together with other stuff so that um, you don't have a, a voter turnout issue, meaning, in other words, making people come out twice on probably two consecutive Saturdays or something like that. So um, it's a sticky issue. I think there, there's no... No easy answer there. And Jieting, I mean, do you think do you think by the, the government doing this to the referendums, basically saying that we, we can't have them with the elections, but we can only have them every several years, is making the government look pretty stupid in a way? I mean, you know, are they are they trying to save money? What are they trying to do? Well, I think, um, I mean, to if I were arguing on the side of the government, right? If I, if I were advocating for this change, the best argument I could come up with is to say, well. You know, we can't have referendums overturning themselves every, you know, half a year or every year, right? So we can't have, you know, this year, oh, we voted to, um, you know, people voted against marriage equality. And then next year, people, you know, the, uh, the, the other, the losing side basically coming out and saying, well, we're going to have the same referendum question that's asked everybody again, right? So there is, um, has to be some finality to some of these decisions. And then, you know, I think to have, these things come up every, you know, only every so often may give people the chance to say, okay, let's 
let's try it out. Um, you know, we made this decision we made. Some people might not be happy with it, but, you know, let's give it a try for at least two years and then see where we go, right? Um, but I think also on the flip side, though, one could also argue, well, you know, that actually makes each decision that much more um, significant, right? Because, you know, whatever whatever this is, the decision is, it's going to stick for two years, right? So people will pour more resources and um, into campaigning for these things. You know, these issues will become just that much more controversial um, and polarizing, right? So, um, you know, if you can imagine where people are deciding, you know, big you know, things, policies, big and small all the time, it's not actually that big of a deal. Okay, I lose this time, but, you know, like in six months or in a year and a half, I get to vote on it again, right? But if, you know, there's more time in between where people cannot actually change these policies, then, yeah, that actually makes them more, um, you know, that much more of a big, bigger deal. Right, moving on, and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week said that it's unaware of reports that US President Donald Trump has banned senior administration officials from visiting Taiwan. Now, the statement follows a report by the Wall Street Journal that the ban has been imposed while Washington works on a trade deal with Beijing. But according to Vincent Yao, the head of the Foreign Ministry's Department of North American Affairs, US officials are continuing to visit Taiwan, especially over the recent months, and the office that he works for has never heard of the ban. But, of course, the Wall Street Journal cited multiple sources as saying Trump requested that no American diplomats travel to Taiwan while he's working on a deal with China. Now, this came out this week, of course, as the time was ripe when a very high-ranking U.S. official name of Randall Shriver, who works in the Defense Department issue of the Trump administration, was in Taiwan. So, Ralph, reports that no senior officials are coming to Taiwan will be saw multiple officials come to Taiwan with the TRA, the Taiwan Relations Act, 40th anniversary celebrations, and we've had officials since then. I believe we had the US-Taiwan Business Council officials three or four weeks ago, and then we had Randall Shriver, a defence diplomat with the Trump administration this week. So what do you make of this report from the Wall Street Journal? Uh, the word that sticks in my mind of all the, the, the various terminology here is the word senior, and usually when governments refer to senior officials, they mean department heads, ministers, maybe deputy vice ministers. I'm not sure if Shriver qualifies, if he fits into the senior category, but it's also one of those things that, as we know, in diplomacy and international relations can be defined uh, as we wish. There may not be a, an actual definition. That's how we, we go around these things and do them anyway. Um, and perhaps the Trump administration expects a deal on trade with China sooner than we think, and then if that were the case, um, perhaps the visits would continue again. Um, I, and I think they have to continue because in March, if I recall right, the U.S. and Taiwan signed an agreement to have these consultations every year on governance in Asia, among other things. So senior officials would need to be meeting one another or at least talking to one another somehow uh, as part of that process. Um so I, I think that's probably what's going on. The, the, uh, there's something happening in the trade talks that involves officials visiting Taiwan, but doesn't mean they'll never come, doesn't mean they can't come later, doesn't mean everybody has to stop coming. And of course, Jieting, there was talk when Trump took office that Taiwan could be a pawn in its in what with the White House's dealings with Beijing, and obviously banning high-level diplomats from come to, coming from Taiwan, coming to Taiwan rather, could be seen as part of this being used as a pawn thing. Basically, Trump has dumped Taiwan into the China trade issue. 
Yeah, I I think um, I mean when I read the article, my you know I what I what I kind of took away was that um, you know Trump basically was talking about this and then it, it, at a meeting and then you know uh, Alex Wong, uh, you know um, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, came up and he basically said, "Whoa, I didn't mean for that to happen. No more officials to Taiwan." And then it, it seemed like the rest of some people in the staff were able to sort of walk that back a little bit. Um, you know, and, and what's really funny is uh, um, Alex Wong visited Taiwan a few days after Trump signed the Taiwan Travel Act into law himself, right? So he um, signed this law that says we encourage, you know, more high-level visits by officials on both sides. And then a couple of days later, he's like, please, no more official. Like, I don't know, no, no U.S. officials to Taiwan anymore. I, I mean, it's not the first time that President Trump, um, you know, flips, like, flips spots on his, uh, you know, policy stands. So, you know, I, that's what I would talk about, too. Right, Ralph. Do you think this should raise concerns in Taiwan? That, that it's been, as, as Jieting said, there's a bit flip-flopping around there with the U.S. and Taiwan. To be honest with you, and this is a horrible confession for a journalist, but I hadn't heard about this until I got uh, heard about it from you, Gavin. That this was there's even a report, which and I read the news every day, so I, I'm thinking that the local media probably didn't pick up on it. They said very little. There's very little concern. Um, and then, but that being said, I don't think that the Taiwanese public was really jumping up and down that much about U.S. officials visiting. It's a nice emblematic sign of. Uh, continuing evolving u.s taiwan relationship which they do like but the fact that people come and go and come and go and talk to officials here doesn't really do that much unless there's some more forward momentum like they sign deals and they make policy changes i think people here are more excited about things like the u.s navy sending ships to the the taiwan strait defense aid you know arms packages and things of that sort because they're real yeah, I guess lots. Jieting, one Ralph point there is you—you you could argue that the the Taiwan general public don't really know who these U.S. officials are that do visit when they do visit. I mean, it's a uh, at the end of the day, it's you know a to the general public, it's a symbolic nature, right? To say, okay, you know, we don't have formal diplomatic relations, but they do send people up here, and they let our people go over there, right? So, you know, at some point, it's. Um, it, it would be alarming if this actually you know, stopped, um, especially if it stopped all of a sudden. Right? People say, okay, something is happening, something's changed, well, something's changed, what's going on, right? But if it hasn't stopped, if it's, you know, this is sort of what's been going on for a while, and the U.S. is okay with this, and Taiwan's okay with this, and this is happening, that's great, right? Um, so it, it, it just doesn't seem like, you know, there, the, the, there was, you know, this, this, talk of a ban by, you know, yeah, as you said, um, Randy Shriver was in Taiwan. Um, and of course, you know, members of Congress visit the Taiwan, their staffers visit Taiwan all the time as well. So yeah, it doesn't seem like there's actually a ban. 
Right, and moving in a completely different direction, lawmakers this Wednesday passed an amendment to the National Security Act that increased punishments for practices that jeopardise national security or social order. Basically, what that means is people who are caught spying for China or other overseas hostile forces will spend more time in the big house and paying bigger fines if they're caught. Now, according to the new law, those found to have developed organisations for China will be subject to the imprisonment of at least seven years and a fine up to 100 million in Penalties for leaking, consigning or delivering confidential documents have been increased up to seven years in prison and a fine of up to 10 million NT, while the punishment for collecting secrets, it means a prison term of up to five years and a fine of up to 3 million NT. And the revised Act also stipulates that military personnel, public servants and teachers at public schools who are convicted of violating the National Security Act will be deprived of their pension rights. So, Ralph, more punishments, stiffer punishments for people who spy for China. Yeah, I, I I think this is more flag waving than anything that's going to be. It's going to change the game. In other words, I believe the parliament is using a thirty non-controversial issue. In other words, nobody wants spying for China, so we take this and increase the penalties for what people already don't like. Whether this is paired with stronger enforcement against spying would be of interest to me if they can somehow mobilize national security people, prosecutors, courts, etc., to find people who are doing it and then trot out these penalties and say, look, we found more people, we're going to put them away. And then down the road, if it decreases the amount of spying, then that would be a, a pretty strong bill. But I suspect that's not going to happen. I think the spies know how to hide most of what they do. A lot of them are in China anyway, so, you know, if they get caught, they're not going to get caught here. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I, it, it, again, it feels like flag-waving, you know, just saying, hey, we're doing something about an issue that we already kind of agree on. Um, yeah, I, I think it's um, kind of part of a sort of bigger debate, right, whether, um, you know, people are talking, well, the, the the kind of debate in Taiwan goes like this now. You know, China is kind of taking advantage of Taiwan's freedom of speech and kind of freedom of movement and assembly and association um, for kind of purposes of destroying the institutions that guarantee these freedoms in Taiwan, right? And so the, the sort of more philosophical question is, well, do we clamp down on some of these freedoms to um, kind of, you know, theoretically protect ourselves against specifically Chinese threats but then at the same time, right, it's, you know, you can't, the, the way the law works is, well, you don't know for sure this person is spying on China, right? So, you know, what if, what if he's actually innocent and then you're taking away the person's freedoms, right? So, like, there's, um, yeah, I think that's sort of the, a, a big debate these days about, you know, sort of regulations versus, um, you know, kind of letting people, self, like, having, giving people sort of more leeway and freedom and benefit of the doubt. Um, and I think, as Ralph said, you know, this is, if you frame it in terms of, well, you know, nobody likes spying. Yeah, if you're caught spying, yes, we will increase the penalties for it, right? But then I think the real, um, the, the sort of real test of how this works out is in actual criminal cases, right, where people are actually tried under this law, right? And, you know, if we presume these people to be innocent before proven guilty, then, yeah, it, are, are we going to put, you know, are we ready to sort of put very onerous um, punishments on these people where, you know, we say, okay, well, there's definitely 
a rate where you know our criminal system the windows just don't catch everybody right sometimes we sometimes you know we convict people when they're actually innocent ralph yeah i even uh, don't have anything really further to say no. but um it is it will be interesting to know what happens in the first case of this type if somebody the next time somebody is caught for spying here um what what becomes of them and do they in fact spend more time in prison and pay a higher fine and deprived of their pension benefits and all that good stuff and then further to that whether the that case inspires other people to quit spying Right, now we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. And welcome back to Taiwan This Week. Now, we have another airline strike this week because... Eva Airways flight attendants decided to call a strike, which begins today as we're recording this show on Friday. Now, apparently 15,000 passengers and 71 flights are affected on the first day of the strike, and the strike revolves around basically, well, the union that runs and looks after the... Eva Air Flight Attendants, which is known as the Taoyuan Flight Attendants Union, it basically it wants its members to receive higher allowances for overseas flights. Unfortunately, Eva Airways is rather up in arms about this because it says the union is, well, it's saying that its members can receive higher allowances, but other people who don't belong to the same union aren't allowed to receive higher allowances which is much the same as the China Airlines strike we had well, last year. So, Ralph, another airline strike. I mean, doesn't, it's obviously putting the government in a rather embarrassing situation. Yeah, thanks for pointing out that we had the China Air strike uh, earlier in the year, too, because um, from what I can tell, the two cases are overlap in terms of the, the, the union demand. And I would expect this one to be, well, I shouldn't say this, but I hope it's settled a little bit sooner um, the uh, because one airline should be able to find out what what happened to the other airline. They can borrow from one another's experiences and try to work something out. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think um, the flight attendants have good cause for asking what they ask for. They spend a lot of time overseas. They work a lot of hours. They're really tired out. It's it's really tough work as the air that the china air case showed back in february so they do need to do something and it's uh, a shame that it comes to having a strike that stops flights and uh, puts a lot of passengers in a, in a difficult position um not sure if it's embarrassment to the government so far they haven't as far as i know they haven't gotten involved in it and they probably won't unless there's uh, it goes on for a while and somebody asks them to come out and, and intervene so far what i've seen is there haven't been no uh, many statements about it so let's see what they do of course jetting this strike comes as starlux airlines is getting ready to take to the skies at the end of the year and of course starlux was started by the former head of eva airways um yeah i uh you know if i were the founder of starlux i would be thinking well you know sooner or later this um problem i will have to deal with this problem too right so you know, do you say, hey, you know, I'm going to actually just 
give my employees this benefit without them having to strike and you know about it and then you know make it sort of a very positive PR on myself right um, yeah that you know but then then again Eva and China Airlines are on you know very different scales than I think what Starlux is planning to have right Starlux is if I remember correctly planning to be more of a regional player um, at least as of now whereas um, Eva and China Airlines obviously fly much more of a global each. So, um, yeah. yeah. I think, Ralph, do you think this could lead to more more strikes in the transport sector in Taiwan? If these airlines continue to do this, other transportation sectors could go, hang on a minute, we're going to strike as well. Probably not, because the airline strikes, uh, for one reason, the unions are organized a bit differently. Uh, for one thing, the flight attendants are unionized, whereas a lot of people here are not, or they're not credibly represented by good unions. That's one thing. Also, airline strikes get a lot of attention. Here we are, being media people, talking about it. Um, People at the airport will see it. It's very visible. It really embarrasses the airline. So there's this, um, it's easy, well, I should say that the union has that power, that publicity mechanism to make the airline do some of the things that it wants, whereas I wouldn't expect the same thing to happen with, you know, tour buses or the, the high-speed rail or something like that. Um, they just, um, they, they, they wouldn't, it wouldn't set as many people back. It wouldn't be international. It wouldn't get that much attention. Right, and moving on, there was action this week on trying to lift a ban on Taiwan journalists from covering United Nations-related events, which has been a long-standing issue for the local press, with the International Federation of Journalists submitting an urgent resolution condemning the United Nations' discriminatory exclusion of Taiwan journalists at this year's World Health Assembly in Geneva. The Federation is demanding that the UN end such a policy in the resolution, which is among 13 urgent resolutions passed at the IFJ's 30th World Congress, which was held in Tunisia last week. Now, the resolution calls on the UN to stop oppressing journalists for being who they are and from whom they choose to work for and to immediately remove the term dictating that applicants' passports must be from a state recognised by the General Assembly. The resolution also says that Taiwanese journalists should be granted media access to future events such as the upcoming UN General Assembly. The resolution was sent to the International Federation of Journalists for review by the Association of Taiwan journalists and the Secretary General of the Taiwan Association Ian Chen says the appeal is being made to highlight that there is a legitimate and genuine concern among Taiwan's media. So Jetting, there we go, we've got more more General Assembly, more Health Assembly news and once again another petition basically calling for journalists from Taiwan not to be banned. Yeah, and I think um, this is sort of a no-brainer, right? I, I think... Most people, I would assume, would say, you know, this is kind of a bridge too far on the UN. You know, it's one thing that, okay, you don't recognize, you know, you don't formally recognize the legality of a state or a, a government, right? It's another thing to say, well, anybody whose passport is from this government, we cannot even allow into the building. That that just seems... Um, rather petty, you know, especially for an organization that's supposed to you know, represent the general interest and well-being of the human race, pretty much, right? And, you know, and basically you're saying, hey, you know, we know you exist, we see you, you are a person, but I'm sorry, I just can't let you in because <laughs> I actually don't think you're a person or you, you're, you're not a legal citizen of any, like, it, it just doesn't make any sense. It, it's just, 
it, it, it just it is too much. And and I think um, you know if I remember correctly, you know in the past people you know visitors from, you know with Taiwanese passports can you know at least you know tourists with Taiwanese passports can enter the U.S. building, right? And you know I I think that that's actually not the case anymore, right? So something like this where it's like okay we understand you have policies and you have Stand, you know, you have your political stance against, you know, governments, right? But then it's one thing to do that, and it's another thing to, you know, target even individual people just for, you know, where they're born or what citizenship they may have or who they choose to work for. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all that. I think that the UN should be. Oh, it's good that the UN was reprimanded by the the Journalists Federation, and I hope they take their case to China as well, which probably started all this uh, once upon a time somehow in some way. But um, most organizations of that scale and even lower scales will use a two-tier system or a two-track system uh, where, where the, the media accreditation has nothing to do with the nature of the event or the participants of the event. You're supposed to prove that your media outlet exists, has a certain number of readers, viewers, audience size, um, you know, submit some kind of paper. Um, a letter from your editor, things like that. If it's actual media, if it's accredited somewhere, um, you let them in. That's that's how that's how things are done. Yeah, I, I just I, I mean I assume you know this is a initiative that you know someone from the Chinese side kind of came up with. Um, it, it's just I just don't under, I just really don't understand why that is even necessary or why that's even. Um, you know why this? Why somebody would think this helps their case? Um, I, yeah, I just don't understand. Right on that note, we'll have to leave this week, but we'll have one more story here, and this involves smart garbage because a smart garbage can has been unveiled in Shinzu this week that it can apparently identify and sort recyclable trash automatically. Now, according to the National Tsinghua University, the smart garbage can uses artificial intelligence and is able to distinguish and separate four types of garbage through built-in image sensing. Now, the machine can distinguish and separate metal cans, plastic bottles, glass and paper containers in about three seconds and it can learn from its mistakes so it obviously makes mistakes now the research team says a new garbage can can eliminate the need to separate trash by hand while increasing efficiency in waste management now there's only one of these garbage cans at the moment that's been installed in taiwan and it's been installed at the shinzu county hall so ralph would you be getting one of these smart garbage cans when they become readily available at our local 3c store i'd love to have one we uh bicker a lot here at home about recycling and how to do it, what's supposed to be recycled. The building management, uh, management, the building where we live has their own views and the city has its own rules and we just tend to do things our own way at home anyway. So if we had somebody who was smarter than all of us who could stand above it, of the ruckus and just say, this is what you do, then yes, I'd love to have one. And of course, Jetting, you're in San Francisco, the tech hub of America. Do you have these there yet? Uh, no, and actually, um, you know, I do you know, from time to time get um, shame, you know, slips from the <laughs> the garbage collectors. You know, you didn't store your garbage right, et cetera. And, you know, here's a warning. So, yeah, no, I would I would love one of these things too. But I, I do have to add, though, I, I think what might be even more useful is if they were able to do this on an industrial scale, right? Because, you know, the thing with recycling right now is you rely on each individual household or each individual um, person to sort, you know, their own garbage, right? Wouldn't it be nice if, you know, we all just throw everything into one big can and then it gets 
taken to a facility where a, you know, a, a AI power sorter, you know, assumably like 600 times the size of the one um, that uh, the prototype, you know, basically just sorts everybody's garbage at the recycling center, right? Wouldn't that be nice? I don't, I don't know. Then, of course, the manufacturers couldn't sell the individual bins to houses. Yeah, but then it's also government, you know, and the government's not spending their own money out of their own pockets, right? So That's true. Anyway, that's I what we we'll- look into this. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, that's a good idea. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined today by Jia Ting Ye. Have a good weekend. And by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And if you wonder what the little tuneful noises were earlier in the show, well, that was one of Ralph's daughters playing her musical instrument slightly too close to her father's phone. Now, she's don't forget... Taking, she's accepting tips and payments for that. Is she? Oh, right, okay. Well, you can contact Ralph. Just look him up on Forbes and send him an email. Anyway, in the meantime, don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.